Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood, sports, and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast. It's good to be back, Mesh. We took a week off. We had that episode with Tafik Rangwala last week, so. Yeah, you did a great job on that. Nice work. Thank you. So I appreciate that, but it, I missed this dynamic. So let's jump right in. <laughs> oh, and happy Diwali to anyone that's celebrating. That's right. Well, BTS, some latest news about BTS. I did not see this coming. The members of the band are going to serve mandatory military duties, which is under South Korean law. No exemptions for them, which is probably a good thing because it would have caused a lot of issues, but they will reconvene as a group in 2025. Am I correct in that you got to do between 18 and 21 months before you turn 30 years old or something, or you have to start before you turn 30 years old. So Jin is the oldest and he was going to be 30 in December. So he had to like get it in or get an exemption. And so there was a little bit of back and forth. I think they that's right. Maybe try to get an exemption. And there's like, it's a hotly debated issue in South Korea because these guys are such an, an economic sort of and cultural juggernaut in the country. And so it was like, Hey, if anyone's going to get an exemption, shouldn't it be them? But yeah, <laughs> no one's above the law, right? I guess is the. But I think that's kind of cool. I think it's like the one of the biggest bands in the world that, to your point, has such a massive economic impact on multiple things in media, are saying, "Hey, look, we're still going to do our service." I think a lot of people are just going to have a lot more respect for them. I mean, I think it's cool that they're doing that. But what if something goes wrong? Well, I was also thinking that too, but I would assume like, you know, maybe they'll be placed in an area that's not that threatening potentially. I mean, other than North Korea, I don't know if there's like any active threats, but who, I mean, who knows? Yeah, that's the other thing. And then the other issue is that HYBE, so the company, the record label that BTS is a part of, you know, what are the economic effects for that? We talked about them on episode 32, right? Because they had three of the top six highest earning music execs last year. Yeah, that's right. And they're going to have, you know, their biggest band is going to be absent for two-ish years. I wonder if that's why they exercise their options, because they knew. You never know, man. You never know. I wouldn't be surprised if it had something to do with that. 
Yeah. But they have other bands, but, you know, not as big as BTS. Well, but they have maybe Bieber. They have Bieber and Ariana they Grande. Bieber and, and, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think they'll be fine. There's no, like, replacement for BTS. And you wonder, and if they come back in 2025, are they still going to be, I assume so, but you never know. I mean, fame is a fickle business. I just think the idea, like, Jessica was telling me that they wanted an exemption. The government said no because the government doubted their sort of, like, pull as artists or like economic power. So then they had this concert in Busan recently for an expo bit. It was a free concert where everyone showed up and then the government realized, oh wait, maybe this band is worth an exemption. <laughs> and they said, well, you know what? We're still, we're going to do it anyway because that's how badass we are. We're going to do our service. Yeah. I mean, good for them. Good for them. I wonder if they're even allowed to like participate in social media and stuff if you're actively serving. Because, you know, are they, do they want to be in touch with their fans? Like, how is that going to work? I think they are going to be able to, like, practice and train and maybe build in some performing time as part of their service. Yeah. I don't know if you remember um, Cap First Avenger when... Lit, dude, that's exactly what went through my mind when you said that. <laughs> I was In my mind, I was thinking in my head, I'm like, it's kind of like Captain... The of, USO tour? Yeah, yeah. The, what's the Star Spangled uh, Man? Yeah. <laughs> You know, he was so like, hey, funny. man, I got this serum. I could be doing more for you guys than just like <laughs> increasing morale. Maybe BTS does that. Maybe they're like, hey, put us on the front lines. And the other thing that this made me think of is Djokovic and how he can't get an exemption from the COVID vaccine requirement to play the Australian right. Open. And it's like, or the US Open. And it's probably someone that's worth an exemption if anyone is worth an exemption. Or he's like, yeah. you know, right. best player in the world. Just test the guy. You know, like, yeah, if he's not vaxxed, then just test him rigorously. If he doesn't have COVID, I think he's okay to play. I'm just saying, I'm not trying to cause a stir here, but I'm like, if the guy's not have COVID, then what does it matter? Right. And it's like, should there be different rules for people that are exceptionally talented or whatever in some form right. or fashion? Well, they have visas for that, right? Like they have O visas for people who are exceptionally talented artists and entrepreneurs and stuff. So yeah, I, I, I agree. Yeah. I think there's probably a play on words here how ARMY now is supporting BTS joining the ARMY. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you know, who knows? <laughs> Quick update here. As we've discussed sort of extensively, most recently, I think in episode 26, when Batgirl was shelved. Yeah, man. There's some tumult over in the DC film universe. Dave Zaslov running the company, Warner Brothers Discovery. He's looking for his Kevin Feige, which who knows, right? If that'll even, if there's another Kevin Feige out there, but the search continues. And meanwhile, the current head, Walter Hamada, is quietly exiting. He had a contract through 2023. Right. But, you know, that was inked before the whole Warner Brother Discovery merger. And, you know, he's clearly not in Zaslov's sort of like future plan. So he's basically stepping down now. But his team wanted him to stay through Black Adam, which you saw, right? I did see it. I went by myself on uh, Thursday night just to do a little escape. And the movie did 67 million opening weekend, 140 million globally. I would say that's like pretty good. Yeah. Rotten Tomatoes gave it 40% from the critics, but audience score was 90%. Look, the movie wasn't great. It wasn't absolutely terrible. Like it had good moments in it. It just felt like a DC movie. Like it's not like going to be perfect. They do a lot of like the same stuff, which annoys me, like a lot of slow motion things, but, but it's entertaining. I thought The Rock did a decent job. I do find it funny because it's like, you know, it's depicted in this like Middle East 
city and they have these like Arab actors who have Arab accents, but they're clearly not like they're fake accents. And it always drives me nuts. So this is like Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when an American does an Arab accent or like an American Indian or Pakistani does like a Pakistani accent. Like it drives me nuts because it's clearly like that's not how the accent sounds. But apart from that, it was an okay movie. I think fans of DC, because I know a few like diehard DC fans loved it or liked it at least. But yeah, it seems like The Rock has got some upcoming crossovers. It seems that they tease that I won't ruin for the audience. Well, you know, The Rock is a box office draw. None of what you said is surprising to me in, in the sense that it was like solid, but maybe not exceptional. Yeah, solid. Solid's even giving it a bit too much credit. It wasn't a disaster. It was okay. decent. Decent, but not solid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're parsing, I, we're parsing I, I was, mediocrity was, here. That's what you get in Better Call Paul. I was, it's so funny. I told this to a fan, a friend of mine who's like, again, DC and he hates Marvel. And then I was just like, yeah, man, it wasn't that great. Who? This is like a good buddy, a good buddy of mine um, who, who's like, uh, oh, I hate Marvel. Like, geez, that's a, he doesn't hate uh, Marvel. He's like, he thinks that Marvel copied a lot of like DC characters and there's, and so he was just like, well, what about First Avenger? That's like the worst movie ever. And then he sent me the Star Spangled Man video. This is a few nights ago. So when you just mentioned it, that's why I laugh because it's, it is kind of funny. I mean, First Avenger wasn't the best movie, but it sort of played no. a critical role if you look at all the movies being interconnected, which I get like, you know, movies should all stand alone and have their own merits. So it wasn't a terrible movie. Thor 1 and First Avenger were not, I mean, they were setting up Avengers. Yeah, that, that's what yeah. they, they were like announcing the characters yeah. and doing the origin story, but they were solid. Yeah. And look, I mean, the Black Adam teaser at the end, I won't ruin it, but like the people that I was watching it with were going pretty nuts over it. It's fun to see like they're they're clearly fans and, and they want to see the success of this stuff. So it's clear that someone hopefully will figure out the right formula here. Well, it's not going to be Walter Hamada, but good for him. I think he had a hell of a run. And he started as like a horror guy uh, at New Line. So, I mean, I think he'll probably land in that genre again. That's a pretty profitable genre. I mean, the budgets tend to be pretty low. Yeah. And if you have a formula that works, you know, replicate it, right? Why not? Yeah. Okay, so let's take a quick break and talk about some streaming trends when we get back. Okay, Paul, so Netflix finally gets some breathing room here. It announced earnings, and in the earnings, they actually said that they added 2.4 million subscribers. For now, a grand total of 223 million global subscribers. That's after two quarters of losses. Everyone was freaking out because they were losing subscribers. The stock got hit pretty hard. Stock went up 10% after earnings. It's now up 25% in the last few weeks. And I think what people are seeing is that, okay, it might've been the end, they bottomed out, they got the subscriber growth coming on, they're adding ads in November, you know, they've had some successful hits on there. So, you know, a good sign for Netflix, at least, at least for streaming, it's nice to see some positivity there now. Yeah, so in addition to the ad tier, which is coming out November 3rd, they're also implementing some password sharing restrictions next year. Yep. And so, as you said, sort of the market, the analysts, financial analysts at a lot of the big banks and sort of financial services companies are more optimistic about Netflix future prospects than they were, let's say, 10 months ago. But my reaction, I'm a somewhat business guy, but I'm really more of a 
lawyer, it's like how much of this is news and how much of this is reaction. So yes, Netflix is up 25% over the past few weeks, which is great. But you know, year to date, it's still down 55%. Yep. Did all their ills get cured in one quarter or are the st- challenges still there? I mean, there's still tons yeah. of competition from Disney Plus, Peacock, Hulu, Paramount. And how much more growth is there? Yes, the ad tier could be great, but like how many more people can afford this service? I think one thing that I'm re- reading in a lot of the analyst comments is like, we now view Netflix as a mature, slow growth media company as opposed to what it was, you know, in the past decade, which was like a rapid growth tech company that had a completely unchallenged business model. Now there's competition. It will still grow. It'll still be competitive. It has a lead, but it may not get to 700 a share for, you know, several years, if ever. It seems like over the course of the last year, we've seen a correction in price because it was maybe just way too expensive for where it is. And now they've been able to, okay, here we have steady growth. They're focusing on Europe. They're focusing on the Middle East. They're focusing on Africa and really pushing content in those areas. So we'll see, man. I mean, it's still a hits business, right? Like right now, they've got some chatter. The Jeffrey Dahmer story I know, was yeah. a big hit. Everyone is talking about that. Love is Blind just released a new season, which is so funny. Like a few friends of mine have been like, oh yeah, we're watching the new Love is Blind season. That was a massive hit for them. So let's see. I think maybe they're just having a really good month and we'll see what happens. Well, I don't think the subscriber numbers are, I mean, yes, you need to have hits, but I actually, I think the hits thing is really more consistent than not. I think it's not like Netflix's content is 60% worse than it was 10 months ago. I mean, the stock price is based on people's expectation of future profitability, assuming yep. a certain level of content and content investment. But it's it's just how much room is there left to grow and how competitive is the business going to be. And streaming, it is the future, but it hasn't been really that profitable for any company that's, that's in it. I mean, Disney yeah. spends a lot. They haven't made profit um, on streaming itself. So it's kind of like you have to be in it, but you got to spend. Yeah. Speaking of, there's some other trends in streaming. Uh, so Fubo TV is a VMVPD, like a linear television provider similar to YouTube TV or Hulu Live. They have about 1.2 million subs in the U.S., another 300,000 internationally. And they're not necessarily profitable, but their revenue was up 34% from the prior quarter, which is good. And they're growing subscribers, which is also good. But one of the things that they were branding themselves as is they're like a sports-focused linear streaming product. Right. So they have multiple channels, but they're geared towards soccer fans and sports fans generally. Yep. Where other linear streaming products like Philo might be geared to more general entertainment, people who don't want to pay for sports content. So Fubo is sort of marketed itself as a sports product and they were getting into sports betting. So they wanted to integrate Sportsbook, which is legal in half the states, roughly in the US, into their offering. And now they're shuttering that because like we've been saying, it's just such a huge investment. I mean, as you know, like DraftKings. And there's a lot of competition. Why? Exactly. Like it's a war for spending, right? Like DraftKings, FanDuel, they're pumping so much cash into sportsbooks. Yeah, Penn Gaming. Yeah, and Penn. And they think it'll be the next big thing, and it may well be, but they're sort of competing away profits, and you have to buy so much ad space to market because that's how you compete, right? There's no real brick-and-mortar stickiness. So they're getting out of that business. And it's also just a tough time right now where the economy is, just everything like that. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, just cutting costs where they can. It's just interesting. Like, 
Sports betting is such a big business, but it is so hard to win at it. To your point, it's just a really expensive business to run. What, to win as a platform or to win as a gambler? <laughs> uh, to win as a platform. Yeah, right now, there's too much spending. All the leading companies are are hurting as far as stock. And like you said, it's trends in the market. But someone's going to emerge. So that will be a product that exists based on yeah. people's appetite yeah. and the ease of doing it. So you know, someone's going to win. It's just a matter of how much you have to spend to get there. And then finally... In our sort of streaming updates, I know we're not hardcore gamers or anything, but so there's this gaming network, G4, which is initially founded in 2002, then shuttered in 2014, then it was brought back in 2021, but it shuttered again. So it's owned by Comcast, Spectacore. And in 2002, it was sort of ahead of its time because it was a yeah. linear network focused on gamers and gamer culture and it launched some celebrities yeah. like I think Olivia Munn yeah, yeah Olivia exactly. Munn was on there and it was shuttered in 2014 because it couldn't compete with Twitch right like just the way to right. appeal to gamers is more with the user generated content and totally you now people streaming so YouTube and Twitch were you know new market entrants that really did well and they had much lower production costs because people were creating their own content and it was resonating with fans so 2021 when money was cheap, I, I suppose, they relaunched it. And yeah. after about 11 months, they're shuttering it, which is not great for anyone that worked there. But they made the decision based on their revenue numbers and more importantly, the fact that their YouTube channel only had like 200,000 subscribers, that really? it was just not, it was unsustainable. Yeah, the investment. Well, I mean, it's crazy, right? Because then you have you see people who have, like individuals who have millions of subscribers and you see like a lot of crossovers, like athletes and stuff will like have a Twitch channel or they'll have a YouTube channel and they'll be gaming. It's funny, I don't game. Part of the reason I don't game is because I get obsessed and then I like get depressed because it's like one of those things where I turn it on and like eight hours later I'm still playing. Like I don't want to do that. But I do watch people play games on YouTube and I watch gameplay on TikTok. And to your point, like when G4 TV pulls the plug, it's like, I'm not watching G4 TV. I'm watching this stuff on YouTube and I'm watching it on TikTok. So, you know, unfortunate for G4, hopefully any staff that was let go lands on their feet because as we know, gaming is growing. It's just a different, maybe doesn't make sense as a linear network. Yeah, totally. So let's take a quick break and get into our main topic this week, Supreme Court copyright case. Okay, so Mesh, this topic is near and dear to a lot of creators of content and people who use content. Yep. It's called fair use, which is a common law doctrine, exception to the requirement to get a license to use copyright, but it's been codified in the US as part of the Copyright Act. But it's a little bit of a tricky concept, and so we'll discuss exactly what it means and its contours now, but the reason we're bringing it up is because October 12th, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in a very potentially important case about what transformative means. So basically, there's a woman named Lynn Goldsmith. In 1981, she was hired to take pictures of Prince. This is before Prince was a superstar right. for a magazine. Yeah, Newsweek. Newsweek. So she took pictures of him in concert and also in her studio. And in her studio, she sort of helped him with makeup and made him appear more androgynous and also was very particular about the lighting. 
So she took the photos. Newsweek chose to use one of them from her concert and didn't use any of the other photos. And as a photographer in copyright law, the photographer owns the copyright in the pictures they take. Right. So then three years later, Prince is one of the biggest stars in the world. Vanity Fair wants to do a, a cover story on him. And they hire Andy Warhol to come up with artwork for Prince for their cover. And as one of the reference points in his artwork, they give him Lynn Goldsmith's, one of her her studio pictures. And they paid $400 to yep. Lynn Goldsmith for that use, for that one issue. Right. You know, that was a reference point. So, you know, let's say, as we were talking about in music, right? Like, let's say you listen to thousands of songs and they, each one of them has like some tiny little impact on your creative process. And you create a song that can't really be identified or traced back to any of the songs you listen to because they were all inspiration. So Andy Warhol, he makes a work, but the work is actually very similar to Lynn Goldsmith's picture because basically he takes the picture, he crops it a little bit, he changes the color, he adds some effects, but you can definitely tell it was the picture. Like right. that was the source. And so that picture turned into a silkscreen, which was the cover of the Vanity Fair magazine, but also went on to be licensed and reproduced thousands of times over to the point where it literally generated hundreds of millions of dollars right. for Andy Warhol's foundation. And Lynn hasn't gotten any of that. Right. So she's suing because she's saying, hey, all of this stuff is derivative of my picture. Right. You should have been getting permission from me for every reproduction. I'm the one that created the original work. You got a license for the first issue of Vanity Fair, but everything that you've done since then needs my permission and we need to work out a deal and you haven't. So she's suing for literally millions of dollars. And at the district court level, Andy Warhol's foundation won and they were able to prove that they didn't need permission mm. because the use was transformative. It fit within the fair use exception to copyright. And we'll get into that later. And then she appealed and the Court of Appeals overruled the district court and said, you know what? It's not transformative. Just because you change the colors and you change some of the format and maybe the meaning, maybe it was sort of like a vulnerable picture and Andy Warhol's work wasn't as vulnerable and maybe it had a different meaning. That's not what we're getting to. Like that transformative doesn't mean you changed maybe the artist's intent, like from a happy picture to a sad picture. Transformative means you're not getting into what the art means because that's not what courts are supposed to do. Transformative means like you're turning a photograph into something completely different. Right, and right, right. So the appeals court said, this isn't transformative. You did require a license. And now the Supreme Court is deciding what transformative means and whether mm. license would be required. And so Andy Warhol's foundation is represented by a heavy hitter lawyer, Roman Martinez, and Lynn Goldsmith is also represented by a heavy hitter. And the U.S. Solicitor General's office is taking the side of Goldsmith. So the Supreme Court hasn't decided this yet, but they heard both sides of the case, you know, why it is transformative and why it isn't. And this has huge implications because a lot of creators rely on fair use to use works without licensing them. And if a narrow interpretation of fair use means you should get a license and err on the side of caution getting a license. And a broad interpretation means that you can take more liberties. Now, when clients come to me with questions like this, and this does come up a lot, especially in sort of like 
making documentary films and, you know, music. It comes up in a lot of areas. I always tell them, when in doubt, get a license. Because what you don't want to do is sort of be sweating bullets, defending yourself in a copyright litigation and hoping that it qualifies as a fair use. Because it is really a fact-intensive, nuanced test that a judge or jury is going to decide. But there are some factors, and we'll discuss those in a bit. And so my advice as a deal lawyer is like, hey, get the permission in advance because it's always expensive to fight a lawsuit. If this thing is successful, you can be sure someone's going to want a piece of it. And if you're copying someone's work or inspired by and it's a close call and you could tell, you could trace it back to the source material, you might as well have a conversation about getting the license. So that's my general advice. But there are law firms and other lawyers that will actually give you a a detailed fact-based analysis and say whether they think something would be fair use if it was looked at by a judge or jury at a trial, right? Like, because if you're confident that it would be considered a fair use, then you don't need to get a license and maybe you don't need to pay for it. And so that's why this is important to the art world and really to the entertainment world. And as we talked about in episode eight, when Katanji Brown Jackson was nominated to the Supreme Court, you asked me, hey, you know, what does this impact on entertainment? How does the Supreme Court touch entertainment? And I said at the time, you know, there could be a myriad ways we don't really know, we can't predict, but this is one of them because copyright is such an important part of the creation of film and TV and and music that whether or not something's a fair use can have really wide-reaching implications and things like Top Gun, Maverick, and and other things that we've talked about on the show. So I'm not sure when the Supreme Court's going to make their decision, but I know it's going to be significant it is it is interesting i mean uh why do you think she took so long to do this (sighs) that's a great question i'm not saying we have an answer but like this is over 35 years ago i'm always curious about like what makes the decision for someone to like act now or maybe it was just something that took a really long time to put together to be fair she's suing because prince died in 2016 yeah and vanity fair did a commemorative work. Right. And that was what led her to sue. So let's say she sued in 2018. And it's finally worked its way to the Supreme Court because that doesn't happen overnight. Right, right. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. But I would say that the more this work is exploited without a license, the bigger the damages can be. Yeah, it's interesting. I I Immediately what I started thinking about is it is kind of one of the arguments for why people, I think, like NFTs from a standpoint of the royalty baked into the contract and things being recorded on chain so that these things don't happen. People still get around it, but it, in theory, it is one of those things that would potentially limit this type of stuff. Well, I think that's an interesting take. I see your point. So she licensed this to Vanity Fair in 1984 for $400 for one issue. Right, right. She did not license to Andy Warhol the right to make a billion dollars off of her photo. Right. So, But he technically would have needed a license. If Vanity Fair needed a license, then wouldn't Andy Warhol need a license then? Well, he's saying it's a fair use. So in general, copyright infringement is the unauthorized reproduction of an original creative work, right? right? So if you have an original creative work and someone else either uses it in their work or sells it or distributes it for money, they need your permission. That's the general rule. One of the exceptions or a defense is fair use. So if you are using the work in a way 
that is providing commentary or education or reporting the news or parody, then it's considered a fair use. You don't need to get a license, right? Because let's say you wanted to criticize someone's book and you wanted to quote a chapter and say, hey, this is wrong or a paragraph and say, this is wrong. And someone says, well, I don't want to be criticized. So you don't have the permission. So courts have established and now it's codified. There's an exception to copyright in the public interest because we want to inspire discussion. We want people to educate. We want to inspire criticism and parody. But what we don't want to do is give people an incentive or an avenue around getting a license to make money off of someone's work without permission. Totally. So that's kind of like the policy distinction. So for example, a couple weeks ago, we did an episode on Ed Sheeran's copyright infringement case, and we played a very short clip of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On and Thinking Out Loud. And because of that, our audience was able to hear the similarities in the music. We weren't actually trying to make money off the songs. Yes. We were providing yes. an educational commentary on the similarities between the two songs. But in other cases, it's not as close of a call. And it's a multi-factor test. You have to look at the character of the use, the impact of the use on the market for the original work, the level of similarities, the substantiality of the use. So if you're just using a small, tiny amount and it's not, and it's like a non-commercial use, that'll help. If you're doing a commentary about it, that'll help. And one of the prongs is whether or not it's transformative. And so that's what this case hinges on. Andy Warhol saying, her, or his foundation is saying, we transformed her photo. Her photo and the silkscreen, they're not the same work. They're two different creative works. This is fair use. And Lynn's case is the opposite. She's like, no, it's not transformative. And you're just looking, you're calling it transformative now as a way to get around sort of needing my permission yeah. and, and paying. Yeah. And I'll add the, I'll put the link in the description. You can actually look at this. NPR has it side by side where you look at the photo and then you look at Andy Warhol's work. That's tough, man. I mean, it's the, it's using her photo. Then this, you know, I mean, if I think about it, what would seem to be fair, like, hey, I'm going to use your photo. I've been inspired by your photo to do this series. You know, I'll throw you like 5% of everything that I make from this. And sure. Right. Because he did end up doing a similar series for Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor. Now, granted, those aren't the same. And those aren't her photos. And those aren't her photos. Like if I took a photo and someone's like, and I just suddenly see it blowing up, I'd be like, uh, excuse me, that's my photo. You know what I mean? That's why we have contracts. Right. I'd be like, whoa, dude, like you just used my photo and you're now making a boatload of money. Like I, I understand where she's coming from. Yeah, sure. And in 1984, if he had known that Lynn Goldsmith wanted 5% in perpetuity for right, any use, right. maybe he would have picked a different photo. Exactly. But then that's, that's why I'm also like, well, yes, I get that it was after that Prince died, but during that whole period, she wasn't upset. Like she didn't go to Andy Warhol and be like, yo, why'd you use my photo? That's a valid point. But I don't know that it's a defense, but it is. it, it makes you wonder. But that's yeah. not, the court isn't really analyzing right, her motivations. Right, They're totally. analyzing. I'm just curious. No, I know. It's a good question. But it's what makes something transformative. And one of the general principles is if they're competitors, like if one is the alternative to another, like you need to put something on right. your wall for a, a right. set decoration, then it's not transformative. If you could want, use one as a substitute for the other, it's not transformative. And what Andy Warhol's foundation is saying is if you just change the meaning, if you it's a happy picture to a sad picture, it's transformative. And the Court of Appeals is saying that's too narrow. We don't want judges to be art critics. 
It really needs to be more than that. So we'll see what the Supreme Court says. So it comes down to the definition of what transformative is. Correct. This one I'm curious about. I wonder how long it'll take till we actually get an answer on this one. Yeah, maybe we'll find out and put it in the notes or do an update when it, it does get decided. Yeah, for sure. Well, that was very educational, Paul. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. Every once in a while, we got to bring some uh, knowledge, right? All day. <laughs> yeah, man, you did great. That was a good one. Folks, that's our show for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to us on the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us at Better Call Paul the Podcast on Instagram. Follow me on Twitter at Mesh Lacani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera, Marco Siler Gonzalez, and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>